Well, welcome. I'm so glad you guys chose to be here with us this morning. Whether in person or online, we are just thankful that you guys took time out of your day, out of your weekend, to be here with us here at Grace. If you are new here, my name is Eric. I'm on the pastoral staff. Um, And if you have just joined us, we are in the midst of a, about two months in now, to a series in Genesis, where we, the past two months, have been walking through Genesis chapters 1 through 3, looking at creation, looking at the fall. And today we're kind of finishing up chapter 3 in that process. We're going to see how Genesis continues to speak to us still today from a book that is so long ago. Uh, I would encourage you guys to follow along in your Bibles or follow along on the screen behind me. Uh, the title of my message this morning is Paradise Lost. And if, you have, uh, if you're a note-taking note type, note type, we do have that in the back of our bulletin as well as an option for you. But thus far, Genesis has taken us on a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, we've seen uh, some of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We see how you went from nothing and life sprang forth instantly through God. And as Greg reminded us in our very first week back in early September, that God created all things and it was declared to be good. And then he created man t- mankind and it was declared to be very good. All of creation was made by God, for God, and for his glory. And as Don reminded us the following week, of all those things God created, it was one thing, mankind, that was made in the image of God. And with that, there was implication in our lives to reflect and represent God in all we did. And then Todd spoke the following week about how God and man walked together in the garden, walked together in harmony together, in community together. They were naked and they were unashamed. And then we had a a couple weeks there, we talked about a a couple different cultural issues that Genesis spoke to, both in gender identity and sexuality. And then two weeks ago, Don started chapter 3, sharing about how this perfect community with God was tarnished in a moment as mankind faced temptation and chose to sin. They believed the serpent as he twisted God's word in in that moment. And finally, last week, our guest speaker, Andrew, spoke about the devastating pronounced effects of sin and the gracious and merciful God that promised the serpent crusher would come. And so today we're going to finish up this section of Genesis 3, looking at verses 20 to 24. So if you read along with me, we'll start there. So Genesis 3, verse 20 to 24 said, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us as we dive in. Uh, God, we just thank you for our time today. Thank you that we get to look at this book that you have written, that you have orchestrated, that you have just truth for us to gather today. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would speak through me, that you would, Lord, things from you be quickly remembered, and things that are just from me, Lord, be quickly forgotten. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you does not come back void. We thank you that even in hard passages like Genesis 3, we see truth and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So Jonathan Edwards once called this chapter, Genesis 3, the most sorrowful and melancholy chapter in the whole Bible. And seeing as we're now in the third week of Genesis 3, hopefully we've shown you not only does it have devastating effects, but also there is joyous mercy and grace to be found in these chapters. And the big idea I have for today is, is really this. It says that sin's consequences are devastating, yet God provides grace and mercy. And so last week, Andrew shared about the pronouncement of judgment upon Adam and Eve's sin that we talked about two weeks ago. But yet today's verses, it really is the outplaying of, those, of that pronouncement and actually seeing that judgment come to fruition. And so as you read those couple of verses, I'm going I'm to go to the end and come back to the beginning here. We'll look at Genesis 3, 22-24 first. It says this, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. You see that right there, even that verse, you see the pronouncement that God's acknowledging that what the, what the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with did par- was partially fulfilled. He was, they were like God in knowing good and evil, but they weren't God in that process. It's one of the things that we're talking about in our small group the past few weeks about how really we noted how so much of, of the lies we believe, if they're just like blatant outright lies, it's easy to kind of dismiss them. Be like, oh yeah, that's, that's ludicrous. But it's the lies that are really good are filled with a whole bunch of truth. And you see what the serpent did in that moment is he had a lie that was filled with a lot of God's words, just a little twist on them. The serpent is crafty. And the reality is that that's how the best lies are. They're filled with a whole bunch of truth. But what we see here at the end of chapter 3 is an execution of the reality that God pronounced a few verses earlier that Andrew spoke on last week. And now we see the very real consequences of sin in this chapter. Up until chapter 3, Adam and Eve lived in a perfectly harmonious relationship with God. They had communion with God and unity together with one another. They fulfilled their role to tend the garden. And it was an enjoyable job. But the devastating effects of sin affected everything. They were banished from the garden. The garden they were created in. The only thing they ever knew, they were given to tend. They were now forced to leave and work the ground. Adam and Eve's relationship would never be the same as well. From here on out, you saw in Genesis 3.16 how the woman, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. But here's the part I wanted to look at here. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Their relationship was never the same. As Andrew mentioned last week, they knew shame for the first time. Genesis 2, they were naked and unashamed. And now shame has entered the picture. Genesis 3.10, it says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. For the first time, Adam experienced shame because of the effects of sin. It also brought death into the equation. We know from Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins. We know that sin brings forth death. And as well, it bring both a physical, it would bring back a physical pain for both Adam and Eve. The same verses, Genesis 3, 16 and 17. We already read 16 there, talking about pain and childbearing. But 17 also says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I have commanded to you, you shall not eat it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. So we see the reality of, of this implication of how sin has come into this world. You see that their relationships won't be the same. You see there's pain. You see they were banished from the garden. They were all they ever knew. It brought death into the equation. But the most devastating effect of all those things was the fact that they were now cut off from God. We know Ephesians 1 mainly speaks towards this idea of this spiritual death, more so than physical, although physical is also now a reality that they did not experience before. And the effect, effect of that would be felt more and more as time goes on. We'll, as we continue to read in Genesis, we'll come back to Genesis in January after Christmas, you'll see the, the outworkings of this sin that play out into all areas of life, and just the reality that, that sin infiltrates and affects everything. And you can imagine for Adam and Eve, who knew nothing but fellowship and communion with God, each passing day that went by, they felt that reality of being separated from God much more than I feel like we ever, probably ever could. They knew perfection with God, and they lost it. I imagine that longing grew in their heart each day that passed. And not only was this reality true for Adam and Eve, but the ripple effects of sin continues to affect us today. Sin disrupts our relationship with God. It, it disrupts our relationships with other people. It has real-world consequences, and we must be aware of this reality. Everything we do can be affected by sin. And so one of the ways I think about this is we th see this picture of you have the instantaneous realities of sin that affected Adam and Eve in the moment. They, had to, they were, felt shame. They had to cover up. We also had the long-lasting effects where not too long after that is when they actually got kicked out of the garden and actually felt the effects of being away from God in that process. So I was trying to come up with a good example of like how this exactly works in our world, this multi-layer impact of sin. And so I thought about really our, our criminal law system is a great example. Let's say you get pulled over for a speeding ticket. You're going to have maybe the immediate effects of getting a ticket and having to pay a fine. But let's say it's not your first ticket, your second, third, fourth ticket. Then you have a later effect of having to go to court Maybe they suspend your license. Maybe they take your, impound your car if you're doing something serious enough. It's this ongoing effect that you have, not just in the moment, but ongoing in, the, in your life going forward. That's what we see here in Genesis, this ongoing effect of sin. Because oftentimes we don't always see the immediate effect of sin. Oftentimes the sin's effect is much deeper. They lie at a deeper reality of our lives. We may not feel, feel the immediate consequences of, of lying to someone or making an unethical choice at work. We may not see the immediate consequences of any number of addictions in our life. Sometimes it doesn't seem like consequences are coming at all. Sometimes it feels like those who are the most rotten people are just still succeeding and, and doing well in life. And what we hold the hope of the Bible is that we, we know the reality of sin will have an effect on our lives, whether it be here or eternity. So do we consider the far-reaching effects that sin has in our lives? Are we aware, are we truly aware of how it affects our relationship with God and others around us? Sin brings shame, it brings isolation. We spoke in our small group this week about 
First John talking about walking in the light and how one of the best things we can do when we're battling sin and temptation is actually bring it to the light because it, it kind of dis- dissipates its power when you're able to walk alongside other people with that. As we read down in Genesis 3.24, it talks about the idea of God driving them out from the garden. This wasn't just a nice, like, okay, you can leave now. It was actually driving them out from the garden and placing cherubim and a flaming sword that guarded the garden. So cherubim really, according to uh, the Lexham Bible Dictionary, are classified among angels, but they're really kind of a unique creature, which they say to have a body of a lion, wings like birds, and a face of a human. Um, it's what's on the Ark of the Covenant. It was in the temple. Um, you see some examples there of the Ark and the potential re-renderings of what was in the temple in the Holy of Holies. But the, the thing is, they're always most closely associated with God's presence. They're referenced, like I said, here on the Ark. And there are statues in the temple and on the Holy of Holies and on the curtain leading into the Holy of Holies. And it was no longer Adam's role to tend the garden. God had given that role to tend the garden, to guard the garden to the cherubim now. And not only can he not do his original job he was created for, but he has no way to access the garden. The only place he ever knew his home no longer had access to it. The flaming sword actively excludes Adam and Eve. And as well with that, they'd have no access to God's presence. The far-reaching devastation of sin that Andrew spoke of last week is now coming to fruition. And we come back to Genesis in January, you'll see, as I mentioned, how the decay of sin continues to spread on through the ages, starting with Adam and Eve's own sons. And luckily, that isn't the end of the story. We know that. Even in the midst of the most sorrowful chapter, as Jonathan Edwards put it, the most devastating, mournful chapter in the Bible, we see God's mercy and grace shining through. And so what I want to do is actually highlight a handful of places in this chapter where we see God's mercy and grace. And we'll jump back up to Genesis uh, 3, verse 20. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And then the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he was placed the cherubim and the flaming sword turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So I know it's only four verses. That's why I'm reading a couple of times. So I wanted to, to drill in our head what's taking place. There's many different layers, many different things happening in these verses. And the first thing you see there in verse 20 is it squeezed between this sentence that God gave Adam and Eve in verses 15 to 19 to now the actual execution of that, that sentence. You have squeezed in there a handful of different things where you see God's mercy and grace. And the first one there is we see this naming of Eve. It's the first one that takes place there. The first thing we read is the naming of Eve. And Eve means life in Hebrew. Adam declares his reasoning is that she's the mother of all living. We don't know for sure fully what was going through Adam's head in the moment, but we get an idea of it because of what it says there in that process. But it's possible that Adam was acting upon his knowledge and trust in God. It's possible that even though he had just been giving, given a death sentence, if you recall, God had just told them how it's through, his off, through Eve's offspring There'd be life again. It was through Eve's offspring 
would bring the one that would crush the serpent. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so you see this picture that Adam knows there's a promise there. There's a promise that if, if life ultimately would come, this one that would crush the serpent would come through Eve, that means that they will have offspring, but also that future offspring, they'll see the, the serpent crusher in that process. And so it's possible that Adam was acting here upon faith in that promise, realizing that even in the midst of this worst part of his life, he was seeing that God was still then providing mercy and grace, providing a promise for the future. Not only do we see God's grace in his, in his provision provide life through Eve, we also see God's mercy and grace a handful of other places in these verses as well. And the first one is through, even through exile. They were sent out from the garden. We read above how Adam and Eve were driven out from the garden. And you might ask, how the heck is that God's mercy and grace? But that in itself, I would argue, is an act of mercy and grace because if they did go eat from that tree of life, they would have pro- prolonged their physical life. So even though now we know because of sin entering the world, they were spiritually dead, they theoretically could have continued to eat from the tree of life, prolong their physical life in that process. They would be spiritually dead even though they're physically alive. Therefore, it's a mercy of God for them to actually be kicked out of the garden, prevent Adam and Eve from living on in a state of sin forever. An act of mercy that allowed the opportunity for the presence of God through the work of Jesus ultimately. So we see it through naming of Eve. We see it through the exile. We see it through, through the covering in verse 21. Just one verse later from 20 to 21, it says, uh, the verse there I actually did not pronounce. Okay, do you go back to the 21? Next slide. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And we see that God makes garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. This clothing is both provision but also a covering of their shame in the process, a protection for the life they would now face outside the garden walls. And one thing to note here, this, this clothing is unlike anything Adam had come up with. He'd come up with clo- uh, fig leaves off, of, off a tree and only made loincloths. But God, by providing this garment of skin, most likely had to involve an unprecedented taking of life for the first time in scriptures. Marcus Dodd's 19th century Scottish, Scottish preacher put it this way, Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature might be relieved. This is the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and death familiar, but Adam recognized death as a punishment of sin. He, Adam, had to learn that sin would be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by, but only by pain and by blood. So you see this picture that God providing covering to them was a mercy to them to be able to go out beyond the walls of Eden, have protection, but also provision and covering for the shame that they felt. And the last way you see this weaved, this idea of mercy and grace weaved through this passage is really it, many different pieces in this, in this whole scripture in verses 20 to 24. It has this, this imagery that shows up again and again through the Bible. It has this imagery of God providing a covering through animal sacrifice is one of just one of many ways through this chapter that shares the imagery between the garden and Israel's future temp, a tabernacle and temple. This is the place of God's special presence where cherubim guarded the entrance on the east. 
The God's provision of clothing paralleled the gar- garments required by the priests who served in the tab- tabernacle. The animal sacrifice that provided covering in the midst of people's sin, all these point to the sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament. They all have significance in Israel's history. And as we know, the temple and tabernacle system ultimately points to Jesus. In John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, literally in, in the Greek, is he tabernacled with us. So you see this picture from the beginning all the way up to Jesus, this idea of God setting forth in motion his mercy and grace. For he tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, and glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of the tabernacle and temple system, and his resurrection confirmed it. Jesus said in John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So you have this picture of this, this tabernacle imagery weaved throughout, woven throughout all of the Old Testament and into Jesus. And if you recall, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was in that moment that he died that the, the temple veil torn in two, symbolizing the access, the presence of God was no longer restricted to a tabernacle or a temple the presence of God was now accessible through Jesus. Matthew 27 said, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks were split. This demonstrated that access to the presence of God no longer needed a priest, no longer needed animal sacrifice, but it's through Jesus. Hebrews puts it this way, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We knew from the beginning the sacrificial system in the Old Testament never could fully suffice to actually cover for human atonement. To actually cover for human atonement, you need another human death in that process. So animals were a sacrifice that pushed God, God's mercy and judgment on, but it was never going to fulfill it. What we see through Jesus now in Hebrews is fulfilled through the blood of Christ. It's through Christ alone we have access to the presence of God. All, of it, all it takes is for us to look to, to Christ's death on the cross, to acknowledge that He took the punishment for our sin that we deserved and by faith accept the free gift of others. He he offers to us of eternal life. He offers us access to relationship with God once again. Offers us access to the presence of God once again. So what does that mean for us today? It means we can embrace God's grace and provision in our own lives, in our own brokenness. Just as God provided clothing for Adam and Eve, He offers us grace and forgiveness in our brokenness today. We don't have to be fearful of how He's going to deal with us we were speaking in our small group this week about how it's so easy when we sin, the, the last place we want to turn to is God. 
But that's the first place He wants us to turn to. No matter what we do, no matter how far we go, there's never a moment where God's turning His back on us. He always has the mindset of the prodigal, prodigal son's father. We're looking out on the horizon and waiting for us to turn to Him, running to us with open arms. That's His posture towards us. He offers grace and forgiveness. And we know that too because we know as was referenced a few weeks ago, Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows what you're facing. He knows what we're walking through. He offers grace and mercy in that process. And he offers access and relationship to God once again. But not only that, we can look forward. We can look forward to the day, the new heavens, the new earth, and being once again in God's presence, in God's place with God's people, experiencing God's presence perfectly. We can look forward and hope because we know the end of the story. We know where it all ends up. Jonathan Edwards in his uh, sermon, East of Eden, put it this way, Christ undertook to lead us to the tree of life, and he went before us. He paints a wonderful picture here using that same imagery from Genesis 3. He went before us. Christ himself was slain by that flaming sword. And this sword, having slain the Son of God appearing in our name, who was a person of infinite worthiness, that sword did full execution in that. And when it had shed the blood of Christ, it had done all its work. So after that was removed. There is no sword now. And the way is open and clear to eternal life for those who are in Christ. Access to the tree of life is available once again because of the shed blood of Christ. He has taken that, that imagery, that sword outside of the garden, the, the, the flaming sword, has put all the brunt of that into Jesus on the cross. And so while the new heavens, the new earth, won't be the Garden of Eden, the imagery that Edwards uses paints a beautiful picture in that process. We have this point in Genesis 3 where for three tap three weeks now, we've talked about the devastating effects of sin. But each and every week, we see how God meets us with grace and mercy in that process. We see how the devastating effects of sin reach to every area of our life. We also see how the grace and mercy of God does as well. For Adam and Eve, there is no going back to the garden. For us, there's no going back to the garden. But through Christ, the second Adam, the realities lie ahead of us. Revelation 21 and 22 gives us a picture we can hope and hold on to. Revelation 21, 2 and 3 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. We see in Revelation 21, again, verse later on that 22 and 23, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and lamp is the Lamb. So you see this picture in Revelation 21 of that day to come, where it's no longer having to go through a temple system, but Christ dwells in presence with us again, and that temple is fulfilled in Jesus in that process.
In Revelation 22 says this, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with the twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing for the, of the nations. No longer will be there anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So one day we will again be in God's presence, in God's place, experiencing that with God's people. We can look forward to that day with eager expectation and continue to live today with a reminder that those sins and consequences are devastating. God provides mercy and grace. We see that throughout this four verses. It's a short, short section. We see that throughout this picture. The effects of sin, the mercy and grace that God continually provides again and again. So the band can come join me. And one of the things we have to do this morning as we think about this picture of looking back and looking forward is we can celebrate communion together. So if you haven't got your elements, I think our ushers can grab a couple if you need it. But as we wrap this morning, we're going to really think about celebrating communion together. And at Grace, we, we, we operate what's called open communion. If you've put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to partake in communion with us. It's a wonderful opportunity to both to look back and to look forward. And I couldn't help, as I read this passage, to see a few parallels of some of the language used. As we think back what's taken place in Genesis, just a few verses earlier in Genesis, we're reminded that Eve took and ate of the fruit, a decision that brought devastating effects to the world. Genesis 3, it says, So the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate. And then you see, looking forward, looking at Jesus, and when he introduced the communion idea in, in the Last Supper, he says, Matthew 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, broke and gave it to the disciples. Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup. When he had given thanks to them, he's saying, drink, drink it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So you see these parallels, this idea of take and eat. I know they're not exact parallels in that process, but you see the, the language used again. One, having devastating effects. One, for joyous remembering of what Jesus has done for us. Communion reminds us to look back to the broken body and spilled blood on Jesus on our behalf, but it also beckons us to look forward to another time we will take and eat. In Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb and the new heavens, we'll have access again to God's presence and God's place with God's people. It's only through God's great gift of mercy and grace. It's only through his mercy and grace that we have access to him today. We know the side of Jesus, how the story goes. We also know the devastating effects are still real in many ways. But in that process, his mercy is more. And we, in times of communion, we can remember, we can thank Jesus, as we sang earlier, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Because we know it's what provides us access. Provides us access to his presence. Even today, when we oftentimes are far from the Lord. So let's take in remembrance of Jesus.
And that said in Matthew, after he had eaten the, the body, after he took the cup, and when he had given thanks to them, he said to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. I want to stand in celebration that his mercy is more. His mercy is more than whatever wrongs we have done. His mercy is more whatever we will do. Let us thank Jesus for the blood that he provided to make a way for us to come back to him. Let's stand and sing.